Welcome to the What's Next Sports Podcast, where each week we will be taking a look back at the main headlines from the previous seven days. We'll be offering you insights, opinion, hot takes and headline acts from the world of sport. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at whatsnext.pod and Twitter at whatsnextsport. Listen, feedback, enjoy and as always, trust the process. Seventeen gentlemen, but before we crack on with this week's episode, we have some apologies to make following on from last week. And to be honest, I'm going to blame Jimmy. We spent a good five minutes discussing and then predicting and even providing a price boost for the old firm. And not one of us even clocks that we were a week early on that one. So nothing to report in terms of who was right or wrong with our predictions. Ultimately, we can probably carry those predictions on to this weekend, but an apology nonetheless and as I say, one vote for blaming Jimmy. But other than that, episode 17, any famous number 17s come to mind from either of you before we move on? I knew you were going to say him. I knew you were going to back him. I panicked. I didn't know who else to say. I don't know if there are any more. Um, I I can't think of another one. Thingy Jones, the the young kid at Liverpool. I really remember. I'm not remembering. I can't even remember what his first name is. He's not that famous then. I think 17 is also the number of full tosses that Don Best bowled during the India tour, but that could be wrong. Anyway, how are you both? Anything to report? How are things? I, I'm not going to lie, I panicked a bit there when you started blaming me for something. There's a lot to blame me for, but I think that's a little bit uncalled for. Good, thanks though, mate. Um, another successful week up in the northeast. How are you, Sean? Happy to be out of COVID lockdowns? Yeah, out of COVID lockdown, out of isolation even, straight back to work. Um, still no taste or smell, so I'll keep that keep you updated with that. But no, uh, back out to do a to do a five k didn't didn't even make it halfway. If I'm totally honest with you, um, but that's enough to for me. Doig, how are you? I'm all right, thanks. Um, I'm just imagining you being about two and a half k away from home and having to walk back uh, or hitchhike the whole way through Durham. But quick run through of the headlines before we move on, then. And this might be something that will be a little bit different in the coming weeks. So please do keep an eye out for that. But let's take a look at the last seven days. Despite playing out a great tie, Juve failed to make the Champions League quarterfinals once again. They failed to qualify for the last eight since Ronaldo joined. Kieran Pollard was back in the news this week after he successfully appealed for an obstruct in the field in their ODI series with Sri Lanka. The England-India T20 series is underway with some more bad third umpiring, some Kohli kicking offs, some Coley batting magic to pass 3,000 T20 runs and some more calls to drop the best T20 player in the world in Dawid Milan. The England legends beat India in their mini-series, prompting Monty Panesar to make himself available to all counties via LinkedIn. The Olympics announced they're going to go ahead in this summer, minus overseas fans, whilst an adapted Lions tour schedule was leaked with two potential St. James's Park fixtures. Brady has signed on to stay at the Bucks. Newton signed on to stay at the Pats and Drew Brees has retired. Whilst also in America, JT won a thriller at the Players on a final day that saw Shank on 17, a Bryson top and a Westie slice. Brighton finally scored to nearly match their XG, whilst Lamella scored a Rabona, which had XG rating of 0.06 chance of going in. Episode 9 guest George Fisher flew to New Zealand for her next chapter with the Southern Steel as Loughborough Lightning stay top of the Netball Super League. Sonny Bill Williams has retired from rugby to focus on his professional boxing career 
and to challenge Tommy Fury's pound-for-pound title. Chocolatito and Estrada put on a fight-of-the-year candidate, thanks to about five round-of-the-year candidates. Joshua and Fury sign a two-fight deal, though until they're actually in the ring, there's plenty to go wrong there, so I'll believe it when I see it. Leon Edwards' UFC return ended in no contest, thanks to an eye poke. Wales are one game from the Grand Slam, as England finally looked a little bit better, playing with ball in hand and beating France. Sunderland won a pizza each for winning at Wembley, and meaning Salford only held their trophy for 24 hours. Wilfred Zaha became the first Premier League player not to take a knee. And lastly, Kevin Ellison celebrated in front of his ex-gaffer's face. Any of those to discuss? Jimmy, I'll let you go because I've got one I want to talk about. I don't know where to begin. Topping hell from Bryson, followed by everyone's reaction after laughing at the top on the tee of slicing yours into the drink. (laughs) Um, Thoroughly enjoyed watching that. Good for Westwood. Thought he was going to bring it home. Um, Just one of those. Lack of stones on a Sunday. We've all been there. Um, the one I was going to say I was basically going to mention the same, the same thing as you the Fury um, Joshua fight Doig was going to more or less say the same thing as, it's great that they've signed it but will it actually ever happen um, I've still got my doubts about it even if they have signed some massive contract that doesn't that doesn't mean an awful lot I don't think yeah, do you know a couple I'm of weeks ago there. when we had that discussion about sportsmen sort of branching across into different sports is Sonny Bill one of the all time greats just in general I'm not even going to say of a certain sport just an all time great I watched a video the other day of him back in the 2015 World Cup giving his medal to a fan. And everyone well, says I, what, he's one of the great blokes of rugby. But I've definitely also watched a video of him knocking 12 shades of shit out of someone on a rugby pitch. So, Yeah, which, which bodes well for his boxing. I think he's already had a professional boxing fight. And has he won the World Cup in both league and union for New Zealand? Uh, I don't know. I never watched league, so I couldn't possibly comment on it. Definitely union. Yeah, I think he might have, in which case, um, yeah, he's certainly up there in the conversation. But Jimmy, you mentioned to me through the week that you were going to introduce your candidate of a dick of the week. Uh, there was one prime candidate that came to mind for you. Do you want to go into that or shall we well, scoot there over? Was, there was only one winner for me up until Sunday night when a bloke called in talk sport and he said that he thinks Steve Bruce should be manager next season. Um, but dick of the week for me, which I'm looking to make a new feature, this week goes to Joe Cole. Um, I thought he was doing a great job on Friday night on BT Sport covering the Newcastle game until he made the fatal error of letting slip that um, if Newcastle had another manager and win this exact same position, Steve Bruce would be the leading candidate to take over and get them out of the predicament that Steve Bruce has got them in. So, Joe Cole, step up and collect your award, Dick of the Week. It's a bold call considering... What, I mean, what what number choice was Bruce when he was appointed? Oh, down the list. I saw something the other day, albeit it was a piss-take list, and it, it had Kevin Nolan, it had Kevin Keegan back on above there, it had and, and or deck written <laughs> on that list, and then Steve Bruce. So that was a piss-take, but you wouldn't be far off putting that down. Like, he wouldn't have been top of anyone's list. I think Little Ant and Deck are probably old enough to manage Newcastle now, so they're above him. Let's move on. Shall we start for this week? And Jimmy, shall we come to you? What's next? What is next? What am I doing? <laughs> I saw it's that. steering. It's steering. What I saw that as soon as I said it. <laughs> the guys are coming with unbelievable tickers. Unbelievable tickers. <laughs> Show your 
that is the question, Andy. What is next? I'm going to take this over to the main feature of today, which was the first day of the Cheltenham Festival. Um, I'm a couple of quid down. Let's not beat around the bush there. I've had a couple of winners, a couple of early winners. A couple of horses let me down later on. But um, I thought I'd just look at sort of betting in sport in general. There's lots of markets you can bet on. Um, obviously, there was a running joke that I used to hear whenever I used to go and watch Newcastle early on that uh, Jermaine Jennings used to have a bet on the opposition to have a throw in, in the first 10 seconds because from kickoff, he would knock it straight over the right-back's head and into row Z of the East Stand for a throw-in. So, don't know. I just thought we'd cover a little bit of Cheltenham, a little bit of sport in general, talk a bit about the betting markets, see what your thoughts are. Are you big gamblers? Was it, was it Letizia, just quickly, who actually did that and he came clean saying that he had been approached to match fix by giving a throw in away in the first 10 seconds and he didn't because the right back actually kept the ball in but he had tried to beat it straight out. <laughs> Do you think that would be the worst thing right ever, back. just not being good enough to actually match fix? You've lost out on 10 grand but also you've <laughs> semi-saved face because you've now not brought the sport into disrepute. Bruce um, Wobbler had a big court hearing about something like that, didn't he? Where they actually said Andy Cole's goals were just world quality finishes and a good goalkeeper they had to get a goalkeeping expert in to prove Bruce Grobble are innocent like <laughs> I remember something that, like this because it was Newcastle what is that fuck? like when Peter Walton's on BT as the refereeing expert to talk about all the terrible decisions he, Peter Walton there. you know might be a permanent dick of the week candidate I just couldn't understand <laughs> the blur <laughs> that was a short lived feature Jimmy <laughs> <laughs> Any bets from over here for Cheltenham, though, at the minute? Or I had a couple, uh, just small wages, nothing to um, massive. Um, just to make one or two of the races interesting. And actually, that was going to be my point in terms of regarding betting across the board. Sometimes an accumulator involving a couple of games that you might not normally sit and watch. Suddenly, you've got a bit of an eye on. It makes those late Sunday night games when you've already watched nine games across the weekend a little bit more interesting but that's about as far as I'll go with the betting I'll never start betting more than big sums of money I'll never try and chase the the massive bets too much and certainly not on horses that I know absolutely nothing about I was waiting all day today for Michael Owen's tips to be honest and they didn't come so I ended up just picking a few random horses but it's accessible isn't it I think I saw something about Cheltenham I was reading a Coral blog where it was backdated to the 2019 festival and David Stevens from Coral estimated that about 500 million would be spent gambling on the festival. Which is a lot across four days. And so over four days, it's quite a bit. I mean, I, I, when I went in isolation, I put £10 into my account and decided to just bet like little £1 here and there, see see if I could build it up with being able to watch every single football match and literally have nothing else to do for the for see how much money I do have for Cheltenham and ended up up by about £20 or something like that. But then looking at it, I looked at it this morning and I was thinking, well, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I will go on Twitter and search, but then no one's really got a clue what they're doing because everything that I backed today went terribly wrong against us, against all the form that all these blokes were telling us was great. So, like you say, it's so accessible and you, you all you need to do is quickly go on Twitter and you've got 45,000 experts telling you that this horse is going to win when actually, to me, it's just a pure guessing game other than the donkeys at the back. Well, two quick things as to what Doggy's just said there. Um, 
Michael Owen for not putting his tips up soon enough. He goes into Dick of the Week Canada for next week as well. Um, but what if he, I thought he put them up throughout the week. Well, Michael Owen's in Dick of the Week anyway. He's he's with Peter Walton. <laughs> he's a prime candidate every week. Um, someone tweeted saying 500 horses will race at Cheltenham next week. 28 will win. My bets will be placed on some of the other 472. And that epitomises the <laughs> one right there. It's a lot of horses racing, isn't it? I mean, man, co- I mean co- COVID. It was the COVID festival last year at Cheltenham, wasn't it? That's what yeah. was the big spreader. Um, so it feels like this is a a full circle point now back to an empty Cheltenham, which does look a little bit bizarre when you're watching it. It looks like one of those really bad meetups that they have for the horses. Obviously, uh, it's one of the biggest things. I caught the first race this morning and obviously Sky Sports, BT Sports, everyone's tried to interact. That, that crowd noise to almost make it sound as if there's a crowd there. And whenever Cheltenham red kicks rum off every year, in the background. Well, no, this is the mad thing. So whenever Cheltenham kicks off every year, there's a big roar from the crowd as the horses in the first race get released. It happens every day, but especially on the first day. And they did this little crowd noise. It sounded as if they got 10 blokes together in a room and just like, all right, lads, <laughs> let's have a cheer. It's probably the weird thing. Like, you talk about Sky Sports sounds being ridiculous, but this was possibly the worst thing I've ever heard. ITV, oh, just, I've lost the words of this. I was astonished. Yeah, at Cheltenham, there are meant to be, or estimated, 265,000 pints of Guinness sank across the four days. Sounds that, that is a crowd that makes quite a lot of noise that you can't quite replicate by just by the ten- sticking a mic in front of a few boys and saying, we're going to play this out when the horses yeah. go. <laughs> by, the, by the 10 blocks in the uh, in the production team half an hour beforehand. Right, lads, off you go. Big cheer, lads. <laughs> Will you bet every day this week, Jimmy? Will you have something on on all of the all of the races, or will it be on not, no, not all one that's heavily backed? Not all of them. Just if the, if there's a race that you look at and you think, okay, there's a horse in there that is he's got decent tips, he's had a good record, he's got a decent trainer, he's got decent odds, and you might throw a tenner on it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be throwing a tenner on every single race on a horse just to appease and hope that eventually I get a winner. And it's just a bit of fun at the end of the day. Like I'm not. As you said earlier, I'm not throwing massive lump sums on this. It's just to make it a little bit interesting. Um, Cheltenham's the big one. I'm not going to sit here and pretend I know absolutely anything about horses. That's the main thing. I'll watch this in the Grand National every year. And even the Grand National might get ruined and Paul Joe might be playing cricket on that day. So it's a toss-up of hoping that I've snicked off early enough to go and actually watch the race. Just on just on that, in terms of watching cricket, this isn't related to Cheltenham at all. Do you remember when we played cricket? I think it was the England World Cup game. Yeah, you're a prick. I got... I'll never forget this. You're an absolute prick. <laughs> I got out at 2.59 there, kicking off at 3 o'clock. And it wasn't intentional, but of well, course it was. Well, I've walked, my at, I've walked at my second ball and I've been reminded by everyone that England kick off in 30 <laughs> seconds and that's why you've done it. <laughs> He's walked past, you've walked past me laughing. I think it's because you had to come out the bar. You weren't anywhere near the change room. You literally had to walk out the bar because you were already settled in watching. Couldn't. Anyway. Oh, that, that infuriated me. But uh, no, not about every day. But to be honest, it's just to make it a little bit more interesting. It's the novelty of it all. It's like betting on the Grand National. You put money on it because it's the big race. This is the big festival. Do you have a favourite jockey that you back, Jimmy? Um, favourite trainer after today's Willie Mullins. Uh, favorite jockey oh, nice. used to be AP McCoy. 
Naughty Moore retired. It's the only one I know. Ruby Walsh, that's another one I know. Walsh rides quite a few of Mullins' horses, doesn't he? I think he does. I, he was uh, he was on today on ITV as a sort of uh, the Peter Walton of the show, <laughs> but doing a good job. How often would you bet normally in terms of not just Cheltenham, not just the Grand National, your normal sporting calendar? Would, what what would be your betting week? Well, fucking hell, if I reveal this, people are going to be holding an intervention for me. <laughs> I can't let that one loose. <laughs> Tinners, you can answer that. Um, I'll go through kind of phases, I think, and I think that's. I'll kind of go through every now and again. I'll put a bet on. Probably at the start of the football season, I'll put a few bets on, and then I'll get bored very quickly when I don't win anything big or or kind of break even or whatever. And then it'll come again, and it'll go through probably Champions League, just through bits and pieces. I never really stick to it. Um, I can kind of imagine how easy it is to get addicted to it. Like if if today you were to put a tenner on a, a bet and win a couple of hundred quid, then how easy it is to think, oh well, this is beyond um, beyond easy, and I can just make some quick cash. And uh, but no, my my gambling's very limited. It's uh, a couple of a couple of quid on some football every every few weekends, and then go from there. Really, Jimmy, you talked us through a, a bet builder last week that yeah. we've mentioned letting us down in terms of our accuracy. But as you were going through that, some of the markets that were there, it was bookings for players, it was sending offs for players, it was goals, goals in what half, goals from outside the penalty area, number of shots, this, that and the other. Does the number of markets in betting actually make it quite easy to potentially fall into that trap of, oh, there's a game on tonight, there's Champions League on tonight, there's a full list of championship fixtures tonight, there's Europa League on Thursday, then you've got all the premiership games scattered across the weekend that actually there's more than enough football especially by the time you start looking at however many different leagues there are across Europe and the world kicking off at random times you can get lost in those apps quite quickly betting on things that you probably don't have a clue about but because they look appealing you'll chase that dollar well coming back to the Jermaine Jenis joke and the Matt Letizia point earlier about throw-ins at the end of December, I noticed the market point on Skybet in the Newcastle-Liverpool game, which was first 10 minutes. And it gives you five scenarios and you simply answer yes or no, will it happen? So it's um, goal kick, corner, both teams to have a throw in, either team to have a shot on target and an off- or an offside. And you've got to pick three of them or you can pick five and it gives you your odds from there. Um, and that's for the first 10 minutes. So what you could be saying is, okay, I'm going out in half an hour. I can't watch all this game, but I can still have a bet on the first 10 minutes. I just think it's... You don't get massive odds. It's not something that you're ever going to win massive money on unless you're betting big. So I I would do that and I'd put a five on. But I don't do it for every single game. I might do it if I'm sat watching a game on a Thursday night and I think, well, there's nothing else to do. Like, that sounds really bad. That sounds really (laughs) sick, You know what I mean? Keep going, Jim. Keep going. We'll we'll get the intervention on. Keep going. Yeah, but when you're just in the house and you're watching a game, you think, let's make this interesting. So I'll bet you could bet on the first 10 minutes, but that's just one marketplace all of a sudden there. And then all the, like, but Sky betting everyone will come on and say, when the fun stops, stop. And there's this big push of um, the betting agencies to make sure that, you know, it's not being over advertised and everything else. But the simplicity of the fingertip, I can go and bet on something in the 10 minutes. I can bet on someone to be carded. I can bet on number of cards in a game. They're doing price boosts to try and draw you in. 
like for all they've got this big advertising of when the fun stops, stop. They don't really give a fuck about that. They just want your money. So and I on think they're going to continue to produce these marketplaces where you can go and you can bet on 10 minutes and they're probably looking saying, ha ha, we're getting Jimmy's money again. He's just been paid on Thursday. We've got it all back by Tuesday. Again, it's not that, it's not bad at all. I'm actually up this year, but that's what they'll be looking at. On that advertising and accessibility of it, is it wrong to that? Because they have all these when the fun stops, stop, etc. And that's everywhere. But then you've still got big Ray Winston popping up on the side of your screen while the game's playing on with a price boost to talk or whatever it might be. And it's still on numerous football team shirts as a main sponsor. But hey, kids Sky- are going to get Newcastle playing in the league next year, the Sky Bet Championship. 100%. And it, is, is that not... And I come to, to darts here as a sport where all of their major tournaments that are on television, all are title sponsors by bookmakers. It is the William Hill World Darts Championship. It is the Ladbrokes UK Open. You've got the Unibets Premier League. You've got the Betway World Masters, whatever it might be. And they are all major sponsors. So as much as they are saying, yeah, we need to cut back on this advertising, et cetera, et cetera, without even doing anything, trying to avoid it, you can't avoid it because it's on shirts. Kids are going to matches. They're seeing it, Skybet Championship, wherever. They're seeing it on the shirts. They're seeing it in the back of programs. They're seeing flyers getting handed out saying, go and put accumulator on it, a coupon, whatever it might be. Does that need to be regulated more to help in general, is it a bigger problem? Is it as big a problem as people make out? Is it not as big a problem, the accessibility and the problems that people get to? Is that a majority? Is that a minority? Do you think... I don't really... An- another one that I saw was, obviously, on uh, Gillette's Top of Saturday, they'll do their Super 6 predictions. And it's free to play, and it's just a bit of fun. But at the end, what they'll do is you go through and it'll then say, OK, so you've picked these six results... If you want to go and put a bet on Skybet now, here are the odds we'll give you for the results you've just put on. Mm-hmm. So you're adamant that these these are going to happen. Now it's not saying that in your bet you're going to get, I know, Newcastle to win 2 0. It's simply saying you're going to get Newcastle to win, but we're giving you odds of 600 to 1. Go put a tenner on that, and this is how much you win. But they're getting people like, there's a big thing about Paul Merson sitting on there who's come out, had a gambling problem, been to rehab for it. And they're getting him to sit and do Super 6 predictions. Is that right? Mor- and yeah. Morally. And then what they'll say, well, it's entertainment. We're getting our pundit to give his thoughts on it. But morally, is that right? I mean, for me, some of the, uh, some of the things that I, I've watched, you, know, you sit and watch all the football every day, you, you quickly realise that if you put a bet on at the start of a Saturday and your first game knocks you out, so in the first half of a game, something knocks you out because of the 3-0 down, Half time comes, it's like next goal scorer is um, Lukaku 10 to 1. And you're thinking, so I've just put a fiver on 10 to 1. Lukaku's going to score. Right, I'll, I'll chuck another couple of quid in. But you've got to put a fiver in. So then you've got three. Before you know it, you're 30 quid down and all you've done is follow the advert. And that's obviously what they're meant to do. And it's very good at what they're very good at what they do. But is it a case of do we need that to be the adverts at half time? Do, do we really need that when you're already people are already spending, I imagine, hundreds of thousands all the time like every single day and like you say you hear people betting on the Brazilian third division and I just think I don't even know where to find that and I'm pretty glad that I don't have a clue but um, it's so easy for people to do isn't it and it kind of looks like fake money in a way 
Well, people do, don't they? They say it's free money if you win type thing, and that's that is a mentality to some extent. But yeah, I completely agree in terms of it's too easy. And through this lockdown period, I imagine there are some people that have got themselves into serious trouble because they're sat there watching TV with apps on their phone where there are all these markets coming up with every single sport available being staggered starts that you can watch every single game that normally you've got six games kicking off at three o'clock on a Saturday in the Premier League and you would watch four television slots. Whereas now you can watch all 10 games back to back and not move from your sofa if you don't want to and sit with your phone backing as many different markets, as many different bets. There'll be some people that will have done really well out of it, no doubt. But there'll be some people that have got themselves into a hell of a lot of trouble, I would have thought. And those constant reminders of price boosts, those constant reminders of pick a super six, those constant reminders of once you've done that, here are the odds that you can get if you actually want to back it, probably don't help. Probably the minority, but then that's enough of an issue, I would have thought that there needs to be a bit more regulations. Oh, these people don't care, though, because all they're going in for is cash. It's like what they'll be saying is it's business at the end of the day. We're trying to get as much money as we can. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and and if it's not them, it's probably a, a booze company, yeah, exactly. isn't it? So, so it's, there's yeah. always a devil somewhere that, you, yeah. that you're flirting with. In and, at, and at the end of the day, it's, it's one of those things that is never going to stop because it's it's too much of a money spinner, isn't it? It's, it's too easy. The advertisement's such a big thing in sports. They pump so much money back into the sports because they make so much money off off people like, well, if you think we bet between us, but we probably bet as low as you can possibly go. You think about the people who bet, they'll get their month's salary and they'll put half of it on Liverpool to win and this season. Well, exactly. Won. I mean, uh, out of us, we'll, the maximum that we'll stake is a tenner. It's the maximum I ever stake. I'll never put anything yeah. more than £10 on something. Yeah, and even then, it's one. It's one a weekend. So, yeah. If you if you see like a yeah. jokey, like I might sometimes put like a quid or two quid on if there's a big game on the Sunday. So like the the old fit, like not the old fit. I'm sorry, um, the North London derby on Sunday. You might put a jokey one on something like both teams to score in both halves. Um, Lacazette to score a penalty. These two players to be carded 180 to one. <laughs> it's never going to come in, but it's just a bit of a laugh. But yeah, I think that's a danger yeah. of people. What starts off as a laugh all of a sudden then becomes serious gambling debt where they've lost a house deposit on it. Just on that, before we move on, is people have lost house deposits in this last week or so in terms of, I don't know whether it's gambling, but it's it's been regulated by the gambling authorities, is this whole football index saga in terms of buying shares in players. You invest your money up front, that tenner a week that we're saying you would invest across three years, there's your 1,500 quid. That's what people are being asked to put in in one sum with no guarantee of getting that back out. Or at least they think there is a guarantee. But obviously, clearly now that the company has gone into liquidation or administration, they're not getting that money back out and those dividends that people were hoping to get back. Is that gambling? You're, you're hoping Harry Kane is a good game so his value goes up 10, 14 pence. And then the next week it might again, so he's up another... 15 pence, that real long haul, slow accumulation that has got a hell of a lot of people into a hell of a lot of debt. And is fantasy football even? Is that gambling to some extent? Because there's prizes on offer there and you're relying on knowledge and predicting the right players. And we talked last week or a couple of weeks ago about Grealish being injured and being pulled out of fantasy teams and people having an unfair advantage because of knowing it. Is that beating us? What it constitutes gambling in terms of where you can stop? I think the, the stocks, what you were talking about, that to me, because it's going back to sport, because you kind of 
gambling on a player. Like if if you put some money on Harry Kane and he went and got injured, well, it's essentially the same as putting Harry Kane to be the first goal scorer, but him getting sent off in the first five minutes. So it is and it isn't, I think. Um, and then obviously, like you said, um, for other things that, that people have lost big amounts of money on it, and and they are kind of back in a player. Is that something that obviously it's gone into liquidation now? But is that something that needs to be looked at in the future? Right. Well, I'm sure we'll still put a couple of quid on um, safely, of course, this week. But Doig, you've got a headline act this week. What's next? My headline for this week is taken straight from the Bristol Live, and it reads: "Bristol Bears looking the real deal with the most professional performance to date." This is, of course, following the Bristol win over Wasps on Friday night. And I had a great time speaking to this week's headline acts. They're top of the league. He is a one-club legend. He is a true BFG. You may have seen the clip viral this weekend from the pre-game interview at Bristol with Max Lahif. And we caught up with one of his starting teammates on Friday night. Our headline act this week is not only a try-scorer from that win over Wasps, thanks to Jimmy Gopoff taking the decision away from the TMO. He played a key part in keeping his team top of the pile in the Gallagher Premiership. This week's headline act from Bristol Bears is Joe Joyce. We're dipping our toe back into the world of rugby today and I am delighted to be joined by a man who has been capped more than 100 times for Bristol Bears, the club he has always been at. And according to his Wikipedia page, he is affectionately known as the King of the Mead, following a commentator's comment. Delighted to be joined and welcome to the podcast, the Bears second row, Joe Joyce. Joe, how are you? How are things going? Yeah, good, mate. Thanks for having me. It's been weird times at the moment, so yeah, I'm more than happy to do things like this. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So thank you so much. Do you ever still get called King of the Mead around the training ground or by it? Has that one stuck? I've never called myself that. I can't give myself what can I? But um, I think our media manager tweeted it once and uh, yeah, it's just stuck. So is that be- uh, a reflection on enjoying a drink at the end of a game or is it? Nah, it was um, when I was playing for Ireland 20s, so my name's pr- it's a pretty famous travelling name. So uh, I came off the bench, Ireland's 20s, and someone tweeted the club saying, is that Joe Joyce the king of travellers? And then Tom Tate and Army, the manager, tweeted back and said, no, it's Joe Joyce the king of Sankby, that's where I'm from. And then since then, it's just, it's just I can't shift it. Too far, I quite enjoy it now. As you said, there's probably some bad nicknames. It's probably better than a, a Joycey or something that's not the most original when you stick a Y on a name. But... Well, I've got other nicknames, but I probably can't say them on there. Say them. Say them. We can drop them in at other time. <laughs> Joe, can you give our listeners a little bit of a background into your playing history and your journey through rugby to where we are right now? Yes, I've been, I've said a few times to other people, I've been at the same club. So I've been in Bristol Academy since I was 14. And then signed the senior senior academy when I was 18. But it doesn't feel like I've been here this long. It feels like I've been at three different clubs. So during during my time here, we've had change of stadiums, a rebrand, we've gone from Bristol Rugby to Bristol Bears. And currently there's not one player in the squad that was there when I first arrived. Yeah, new training ground, like I said, new stadium, different name. We've gone, we've gone through a lot, different coaches. So uh it feels like I've been here, it's been a fresh era. It feels like I've been here about three years, to be honest. It's probably a good thing. To, I, I think it hasn't gone stale yet, do you know what I mean? So uh, still loving it. In terms of that process of going through career, people sometimes change environment for a freshness in their playing career or whatever it might be. Those changes in stadium, the rebrand, this coaching staff, even the players, and to some extent that will come on the division that Bristol played the rugby in. Have they been challenges as you've gone through those hundred caps that we mentioned, or has it been enjoyable? 
Um, I've always wanted to be um, like a one a one club man, but then also you have a challenge run. There's times when I was younger, probably wasn't getting the side, and it becomes hard to be patient, then doesn't it? So you you want to play. Once you have a few games, you get a taste of taste of it. You want it every week, and when you have changing managers, at the end of the day, you're at mercy of one man's opinion. One coach comes in, thinks you're brilliant, you play. Next group comes in, doesn't like the way you play, you're, you're frozen out. So yeah, it's um. You have these moments when you question yourself, is it the right thing to do? And then when you get older as well, your family comes into it as well. It's part of your decision. But I'll say in the last four or five years, I haven't thought twice about staying. That's awesome. It certainly seems at the moment, which we'll come to, a great place to be a part of the camaraderie around the place. Obviously, the success on the field at the moment. There's probably no better place to be in the English game, certainly. How did you get into rugby? I know you mentioned joining the academy through the age groups and bits and pieces. What was your exposure to rugby before that? I played rugby since a very young age, maybe a year. I think the first time I played rugby, under sevens, didn't you? I actually started off when I was five. So uh, I played it since, since a very young age. And uh, I played a lot of sports. So when I was young, I played football, cricket and rugby. I was useless at cricket, but um, I enjoyed the, the club culture I was at. But... Um, yeah, I've always loved rugby. Probably, to be honest, I'm probably a bigger football fan. Right. But um, the body changes and uh, I, was, I was limited in my football ability. So, yeah, <laughs> I say I'm, I prefer football, but I'm more of a rugby man. That makes sense. Do you I'm, think that playing experience, those transferable skills have benefited you into your professional career? Playing other sports? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Especially, for example, cricket, hand-eye coordination, yeah, he stood on the boundary net, ball's coming towards you. You've got to judge a flight, second round rugby, kickoffs, that ball's coming towards you. Little things like that. You, you can you can translate some of the some of the skills. So uh, yeah, and also just when you're growing up, you ain't got no time to be to be naughty or doing getting up to no good because uh in a couple of days it'd be a football game, rugby game, cricket game. So I had no time to, to play up. That makes sense. It's the best way to be busy, isn't it? You see kids on screens nowadays gaming away. And I know there's one or two rugby players probably do exactly the same nowadays. And that's their escape from training almost. But yeah, get out on the streets, get and play, kick a ball against the wall or sure kick each other. If we can touch a little on the start of your rugby playing as a junior then, you've previously highlighted the difficulties you face as a youth player coming through regional representative and then national honours due to the fact you weren't privately educated, whether that was someone was selected ahead of you because of where they went to school. Can you touch a little on that time, whether that was a factor in driving you to succeed or was that purely a hurdle at that time that you've overcome? Even at a young age, I started to notice this sort of stuff. So we're not... When I first started playing rugby under sevens, I was at Clifton Rugby Club in the more of an upper class area. And I think I was the only kid, oh, I was, I was the only kid in, in that team that didn't go to a private school, which was fine. Got me very well, it was brilliant. But my school was, uh, it wasn't any rugby. So we had, a, I think it was a three, three week period with no games. And instead of training, like most teams would, I mean, a game would train, there was no training. And the reasons was, uh, they get we get enough training at our schools. Well, obviously, I didn't I didn't do that at my school. I was about under 11s. That's when I made made a decision to move to a club called St Mary's, or uh, it turned into a bit of a bit of an academy. To be honest, it was a uh, at the time I thought our coach was crazy. We was Tuesday nights so with like S and C fitness. Where at Thursday it was all skills and team run, and then game on a weekend. But the our coach then, to be fair, in that team at St Mary's, Callum Brady is now playing in the Six Nations for Italy. Jake Pledry is as well. And we had some great players on that team going and play National League rugby and Championship rugby. So that's when I noticed the difference. And then when you get to 
yeah to like invitational stuff for the under 15s 16s your southwest 16s england 16s and stuff like that um you're out of like i do you do think i'm better than him like why am i not doing this why not pl- i'm playing against him in a club game and i'm better than him but then he's still getting picked for if, if say if you look if i looked at my england 16s team now i don't think you see one player playing fashion rugby but i find that changed when you get to under 18s that all changed in my opinion, people might have a different opinion, but I think under 18s, it didn't matter what college you went to or where you was at, but the best players were getting chances. So, do you, do you think that's changed? I know you're obviously way out of your school years now, not to put a bracket on your age or anything like that, but do you think that private school prejudice still exists in rugby, lower down within club academies, despite attempts to increase the number of AASE schools and accessibility to sports within the communities? Well, I think it's got way better. I think it's still a long way to go. I think um, I watched a thing on Amazon. I think it was directed by Ben O'Bano, Mara Toji, Ellis Ken, Jeffrey Watson. They put they put a, a thing on Amazon Prime about it, which is good if you watch that. Mm-hmm. But for example, my school I went to, they now have got a, a director rugby out there. Uh, when I was there, just a field and a ring that always got flooded. Now <laughs> they've got 4G pitches, proper rugby coaches. Where when I was there, it was just your know, PE teacher. It'll take the football team, cricket team, rugby team, take all of it. You won't train, you turn up and play. So now, because I've been back there a few years back, they've got direct rugby, like I said. They train properly. So it was nice going back there and see the, the progression they made just in my old school. Nice. That's important as well. And there's opportunities that that can create. And the next Joe Joyce that comes through that because it's a better environment or a more professionalised environment. Or something. What do you think of 4G pitches? You say there's one in there now. I know there's a... Well, certainly the Falcons have one in the Premier League. I know Sarri's had one, but what do you think of playing on them? I'm not a big fan at all of them, but I, I get struggles with tendonitis on my knees and my Achilles. And uh, for example, I haven't felt tendonitis on my knees until about halfway through last, last season. Played against Worcester on a weekend on a 4G pitch. Like the cuts, I got cuts and bruises, but you get over them. But now, like today, I limit, limit my jumps because mm-hmm. tendonitis have come back on my knee. So it's no coincidence that I've not had it for ages. Then we practice on 4G, play Worcester on 4G, and my knee pain to come back again. Do you go and practice on 4G the week before you go there, do you? We're lucky to have an indoor barn in um, our training ground. So probably training there more than we usually do, which you've got to if you prepare. It's very different, especially set-piece stuff, scrummaging and, and mauling. Mm-hmm. It's different on, a, on 4G. So yeah, people will say otherwise, but I think there's no coincidence that. People have talked about the advantage it gives in terms of being able to play week in, week out. There's no games lost, but the surface is always relatively consistent. You can play quite an expansive game, provided it's dry and those sort of things. But I guess you probably you don't necessarily think about the purchase you get in a scrum, being able to lift the repetitiveness on your knees yeah. and bits and pieces like that for the, the bigger guys up front, so to speak. But that training facility that you've got at Bristol is pretty incredible now, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy, especially um, going what we had before. We also never had our own training ground. We shared with the rugby club, which is just an amateur club. But yeah, I would comfortably say it's the best rugby facility I've ever seen. And uh, that comes with pressure, though. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when we first moved there, you think, we've probably got some of the best coaches in the world. They've probably got the best marquee players in the world. Now we've got probably the best rugby facility going. Like, And when COVID hit as well, we've seen what was going on in other clubs. Players won't get them paid properly. Our owner is still looking after us we've got to win something for him for the for, for, for the community mm-hmm. for the city for our owners for everyone so that's kind of pressure and that's why 
when we won the European Challenge Cup, that also felt like cool. We're justifying what we're what we're training. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. You can't train in in cities like that and produce shite on the weekend. Trot, you, know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you handed your debut for Bristol 2014, I believe. It's been a bit of a ride for the club over those last seven years or so. As we've mentioned, we've talked about the rebrand, we've talked about the championship, we've talked about the success in Europe, or you've mentioned the success in Europe, which we'll get to a bit more. As we speak, the club are currently top of the Premiership. It probably is a really obvious question, but just how far has the club come in the time that you've been there? Yeah, it is crazy because I think my first year, I was 18, signed a senior academy contract. Um, I think Christmas time, we were sitting at eight from the championship. And I remember us losing my 50 points against Nottingham. I thought, wow. And then they had a different, that's when Annie Robinson came in just to save us. And um, yeah, it's come a long way. What I found crazy was the championship playoff system. It was very harsh because mm-hmm. I know we're up and down on the championship for a long time, but I think we finished top of the championship four times, once by about 20 points and didn't go up. And uh, and that affects your so when you eventually when you eventually do go up that aff- affects your recruitment because in rugby most recruitment is done by January February and by then if say we go approach a player to come play for Bristol next year or we're in a Premiership how can you how can you promise them you could be top by 15, 20 points but you could lose in the playoff final so you're probably not getting the players in you want for the season after so you go into the Premiership probably like not not good enough just just player wise so I thought I think that was difficult but then. I mean, got promoted a second time, Pat King. They went to the top, got promoted. So by Christmas time, it looked like we're going up. You can recruit properly then. So there's loads of things. I found that very strange championship to begin with, and, and it's difficult. But yeah, everything else since then. I've been involved with some teams at Bristol culturally-wise where not many people liked each other. I didn't like many people not long ago. Uh, there was groups, it was clicky, people here for the wrong reasons. And uh, that's completely changed. Now. There's, not a bad, there's not a bad egg at the club. I think that is, is shown. It's not that you necessarily a few a little while ago you could recognise there were bad eggs, so to speak, but you can see the togetherness in the side now. Is it Pat Lamb? Is he the main factor in terms of the major recent successes? The, the owner and his looking after the players. Is it a combination of that and other things? What what has caused the greatest turnaround almost in that short period of time? It's got to be the Langsdang family and and Pat, to be honest. And uh, I thought the main difference I've experienced under Pat. So your senior players and your leadership group, the people come in, um, your captains, your leaders, people on, on the big bucks, your big names. In the past, those people probably are for the wrong reasons, the last paycheck, injury prone. But I think everyone, every single person Pat's bring in has not been a risk. He's either new. And for example, let's think of our our big stars. He coached John Afoa Auckland. He knows him. He knew Stephen Luatua. He coached Semi. Rajaraja at Barbarians. He co- he coached uh, Charles Piertal before, so all these players you bring in on on the money, on the big money, it's not a risk. You know you know what they're going to bring. They're not going to come here and, and take the piss. They're not going to they're going to come here and drive standards with Pat, and that filters through then. So yeah, I think that's the biggest difference. We've got a leadership group who who are here for the right reasons, want to win things, want to drive their teammates along of them and set standards. Where in the past we never had that. How quick are you to put your hand up to tackle Semi Randrada in a one-on-one drill yeah, of the week? No one is. That's <laughs> not, he's not 100% in training. He's not one of them. Uh, I hate, not, the, hate those people that can turn it on on a weekend. Yeah. He, oh, he's 
he's a walk around in training. He's still unbelievably good. It's, everything he does in training, look, he's not trying. That's how good he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not smashing boys into pieces in training. Thank God, because he can do it whenever he wants. <laughs> What are the club's ambitions at the moment? 27,000-seater stadium, state-of-the-art facilities, top of the premiership, the European title, league playoffs last year. Where does the club want to go? Where where can the club go? Well, eventually, we want to... We, we know, that's what I like about Pat as well. He puts our targets and our ambitions. He puts it out there straight away, doesn't he? So, for example, when we got promoted from the Championship, straight away, because I want Champions Cup next year. Don't want any relegation talk. <laughs> we want to finish in the top six. And we were, one, we were, I think, four points off, do, off doing it. In the second year, we said, we want to win European Challenge Cup. People might think, that's, that's pretty crazy. You've been in the Premiership for a year and you're talking about winning European Cups. We've done it because once you say it, you think it, you believe it, you're at it, it happens. And it happened. And, now they, and obviously this year, we said, we want to do better than last year. And last year, we semi-final in the Premiership. So that means this year's got to be the final. We want to win it, obviously, but the minimum would be the final. And then... Um, we say we want to be in the top four, like you said, but that could be we're top at the moment. But we said top four, that doesn't mean we finish fourth, we could be anywhere there. And then obviously in the Champions Cup, we want to go as far as we can. I don't see why we can't we can't win it. Next round we got um, Bordeaux away. We beat we beat Bordeaux last year. Mm-hmm. It's just been drawn, yeah. And if we win that, we've got a home a home quarter as well. So anything's possible, especially with the talent that is around the place at the moment, you mentioned some of the names before. There are those international superstars throughout the squad, both internationally and closer to home in the home nations. You've got Sheedy, Mullins, Randall, Earl, Sinclair, Hughes, Pietar, Andrade. How big an influence do those guys have on the dressing room as part of that leadership group in terms of reinforcing those messages that Pat Lamb, you've mentioned, has said, and then ensuring that standards are maintained throughout and that you never lose sight of those goals? Yeah, massive. And it's not just those players either. It's boys, so the ones that are not, so not so say the big dogs, not internationals. Everyone's driving that. So, uh, like you said, Pat always, when he first came in, just put your hand up if you think you're a leader. And like five or six people put their hand up. And if he asked now in a, in a team meeting, put your hand up if you're a leader, everyone put their hand up because he says everyone's got the ability to influence the game, aren't they? Influence the teammate, which means everyone can leave. So, I would say we're all leaders, but um, you see, mention all those names. What, what I'm proud of with those names is people like Callum Sheedy and Harry Randall because they've not bought those internationals in. They've the Bears' way, the, the, the Bears' culture they've created, obviously, with their hard work with the coaches they went around them, they've become internationals through the success they've had for us. Do you know what I mean? So it feels I feel prouder seeing Callum Sheedy run out for Wells. Uh, probably like English boys and seeing some of the English boys at Bristol went up for England because uh, I've seen Callum for example since in the academy with him I've seen him I played played for him in National 2 at Dings I've uh, been at A-League games with him struggling been on a bit we both put on 6k a year together do you know what I mean and then to see him uh, get Six Nations round, uh, player of the round year mm-hmm. a week you think that's because I've seen your rookies put in that's so. awesome another <laughs> I'm not one to force people to dish dirt on certain players, but another Welsh back that you've played with before that I've heard you talk about, you were in a team with Gavin Henson for a little while when he was at Bristol and there's no doubting his talents, but I know a few of his former teammates have passed comment now and again on two or three of his pre-game habits, including size two small shirts, morning gym sessions to bulk up on a match day. Was he as vain as the press that he gets? What sort of stuff did he get to up to at Bristol? 
Yeah, he's different. I would say he's probably the most professional, one of the most professional players I've ever really? played with and seen. For example, uh, he bring in his own food every day because he, if someone was on, he wouldn't agree. So every day you see him come in with his diet being mad. I see him chewing on raw peppers and <laughs> like playing like just a packet of turkey. And and uh, I remember on a way trip, I was, we stayed in like before a game and uh, we have snacks about eight, half eight. And uh, he poured himself out a bit of olive oil and starts drinking olive oil. I thought, what's he doing there? Apparently, it helps you sleep, but he needs to have a certain amount of fats in his body, like before a game. Um, there's loads of stories, but one that threw me off was my championship home. No, my first championship start was uh, we just moved to Ashton Gate and it was against Bedford. So, so I'm pumped up, obviously nervous. Um, after warm up, we come back in, last talk, three minutes of kickoff. So, we get in a huddle, and like Gav's like last of the huddle, and he's just topping up, he's got a dry, dry shave on top of his quads. About three minutes for a kickoff, they're touching up. I'm like, that just completely killed. Obviously, I'm I'm not used Gavin. This that level to Gavin was obviously a piece of piss, easy for him. First time for me at this level, so I'm, I'm right up for my temperatures up here. I saw that, I, was, I didn't know what was going on, but yeah, yeah. There's the stories of him doing his fake tan and locking in the room and the place smelling of biscuits and stuff like that. But his talent was second to he must have been incredible to play alongside as well, yeah, great. Unfortunately, he was injured a lot here. Mm-hmm. And when he was here, I wasn't really in the team that much. But when he was on it, he was on. I remember we beat Bath. But we, that year, when we got really from the Premiership, it was a poor year. I think he won about four games, I think. And he wasn't available for a lot of it. And he came in the Bath game, probably about three, four months out of injury. And he basically won that game for us on his own. His boot is unbelievable. His skill set is unbelievable. You've mentioned the Championship there. And playing there and we're not too far out from the announcement that relegation will be scrapped this year from the premiership something that won't have the biggest impact on bristol or certainly doesn't look to have the biggest impact on bristol at the moment but saracens amongst their scandal they're currently down there in the championship they've just got off to a terrible start but having played in that division and you won players player of the year whilst down there how hard will it be for them to get out of that league how competitive is a division is the championship the hardest bit you'll find is every team that plays against you is their World Cup final. Mm-hmm. So, like you say, there's no doubt um, Saracens every week, look at both 15s, Saracens will have the 15 most talented players compared to every team. But then, emotion, and the motion level for the other team is right up there. And what, what I've heard say a lot of times is true. Like hard work will beat talent when talent that work hard enough. So when you got fifteen blokes, say from Cornish Parks on weekend, we're all given hundred percent. You probably got people in the Saracens dressing room have turned up to the to the Cornish Parks game. Was ain't very nice. I never seen one World Cups things like that. You can probably look there and go turn it. You can see subconsciously you're probably thinking that. And then you play against a team. All they want to do is smash you about. They want scrums. They want moles. The pitch is poor. It's hard work. People. Um, you can't underestimate the championship. It's very tough. It's very physical. But it's in the premiership. It's all that and three times as fast. But the championship is really physical. Having been down there and having experienced that division and the desire amongst the teams and the players there, do you think the scrapping of relegation, which seems to be a move towards potentially franchising it and ring-fencing it, is that going to be good for the game and for the league? Or is there far more to it than just what it does to grassroots rugby? Um, 
But since then, for us, it, it doesn't matter. On a selfish point of view, it don't matter because a lot of things have to go wrong for us now to stay go into relegation battles. I think what we got now, players, coaches, training ground, everything, that, that shouldn't matter to us. But I think it would take away the values in, say, get to Christmas time, teams are uh, oh, we're not going to make top six, we're going to make playoffs. And there's games down the bottom of the league. Would it become, if there's not much riding on it, would it be that fun to watch, for example, things like that. But then on a plus side of that, I think you'll see a lot of younger players getting opportunities in game times because the games don't come as as big. If relegation is not a threat, you can develop younger players. So that'd be good. But then for the players in a championship, they look at our team now. So many players that come from the championship at Bristol or recruited from the championship. So I personally wouldn't want to see the ring fence in because a lot of good players do go for the championship. And it makes the championship more exciting as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I do think it would have its benefits of developing English talent. I do. I think a lot of academy players, English qualified players, will get a lot of games in the Premiership because of that. That's just why everyone have different opinions, but that's my opinion. No, absolutely. And it's fascinating to hear someone who is playing in the division, as you mentioned, at the top end of that division. There's selfish implications, but also there are very real world implications. And it is a decision that they won't take lightly, but I hope they do make sure they look at every single angle. Joe, before we go, I've got six or seven quick fire questions just to close with. Okay. Um, Don't think about them too much, just short answers, but uh, we'll see what you've got for us. Best moment in rugby. Everyone thinks I'm going to say the Challenge Cup final, but it was being Exeter about two months ago because I I had a weird moment in change before the game looked round and I thought, this is probably the best Bristol team I've ever played in. And then we beat the champions, European champions at home. So that one. Awesome. Before that, it would have been the Challenge Cup though. Yeah. yeah. How good was that? That was, it was emotional. It was, it was, it was like a, how the club come so fast in such a short period of time. Mm. And even just my opposite numbers, I was playing against Eben Escabeth and got his name now, a huge French lock. And I, I walked out with a gold medal and walked out with a silver medal. It just, uh, it was mad. And deserved at the time. It was incredible. Best player you've played with? Sammy Radwaja, easily. Best coach? Pat Lamb. Worst roommate? Worst roommate, worst roommate. Nicky Thomas. We probably played against him uh, Friday. He was on loan at Bristol, and now he's on loan at Wasp. So uh, he's just... Do you, need, uh, do you need details why, or...? Just get naked straight away. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's rugby players, isn't it? That's not he's, just him. Nah, he's, actually, he's actually a legend. <laughs> Pre-game meal. Uh spag bowl. Pre-game playlist. Pre-game play my playlist is weird. You go from Irish music to grime to pop to R and B is is mad. <laughs> Post-game celebration. Um COVID celebration drink one, no, really. Mm, that's uh, pre-COVID, um, I'll say a few a few a few cans of Thatchers and uh See if my girlfriend will let me out. <laughs> and then oh, lastly, oh, <laughs> worst away day in the league? Worst away day? Um, I'm just saying it because our rivals, but Bath, the change rooms, it's like a shoebox and the pitch ain't great. But on a plus side, it's not far. But Some some places like that, the, sh- the change rooms must have been bigger now because they've got to sit you in corporate suites to space you out and things like that. That's true, but we've not played Bath away yet, have we? No, we haven't played away yet. They'll stick you in the shoebox still. Yeah. 
away games. Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure to have half an hour or so with you. Really appreciate you speaking to us. What you're doing and what the club are doing at Bristol is incredible. It's a great journey to watch. I'm sure it will continue from a distance. I will be following the journey. We wish you all the very best. We wish the club all the very best and much more success moving forward. Thank you very much for joining us. Cheers, mate. Thank you. A great guy. Good fun speaking to him. You can hear the enthusiasm that he has for the club, having experienced all the changes and just the camaraderie and feel-good factor there is around the place at Bristol currently. Six foot five, 220 pounds. Jimmy, would you back yourself? Uh, well, I've taken down Colin Trick in my day, so never say never. Grumpy was a short... What's that? We can set it up. We'll uh, set it up, a one-on-one. experience for me, Andy, you're all right, but I'll, I'll retire on, on the, the frightening heights that I reached at schoolboy level. <laughs> Out on the field. Uh, Tinners, what's next? Uh, I thought we'd have a look in the... A little bit of management, really. So I'm just going to go with uh, Sheffield United confirm Chris Wilder sacking after poor Premier League form. I thought we'd just discuss do we think that's the right thing that they've done? Obviously, they are going to be going down. Um, and then just look at obviously our predictions in the in the past when we said about our first manager um, and, and go from there, really. Well, I don't think I predicted Wilder to go, although I know I didn't predict Wilder to go. I said Nuno. So I was wrong on that one. But. I, I don't think I've got a massive issue with them going. I think the circumstances are a little bit strange. They've they've come out previously and said they think he's the man to bring them back up when they've already accepted relegation. There's obviously clearly been a bit of an issue there with the board this year, the <laughs> idea of a director of football that he doesn't want to work under and hasn't had to work under over his time there when he's been on that journey, bringing them through all the divisions and all those back-to-back-to-back promotions, sticking by the players... He's been in control of signings, appointments, this, that and the other. He's a fan of the club. It was only in January where he said, I'm not have to put up with this bollocks much longer. And I think that was directed at referees. It was directed at the Boers. And now, middle of March, he's finally gone. I'm not surprised, but more, I don't quite know where he goes from there. Well, I'll just, just on that, there, there was... There was rumours. I mean, I literally, as I as I looked at the headline, that there's something about who who takes the Celtic job next, and if they go something along those lines, um, which would be a, a strange one. Um, I don't know where he goes next. For me, it's strange, like you said, because he'd be one that they bring back up, um, that would bring them back up in a sense. Um, but I'm not sure really. I think he would end up going to a club struggling in the Championship, possibly, and trying and doing the similar thing. Allardyce wants yeah. to be on the year. Quick fix back in. Yeah. They'd obviously back in to get him back in the Premier League. As you said there, I can maybe see him going to someone like uh, a Preston, you know, someone who's been on the cusp of promotion for pretty much yeah. five, six, seven years now. And almost just having that experience of a manager who's been up, survived a year in the Premier League, succeeded in the Premier League like he did last season. We'll ignore the fact that he's been absolutely atrocious this year. And he signed Rian Brewster for £25 million. But I could see a team like that going through. Am I wrong in saying this? Yeah. Did the Bin Laden family buy into Sheffield United? Yeah. Fucking hell. It's, it's, proper it's Prince Abdullah, I think. I know it's a big family and whatnot. And it wasn't him, but... 
when you hear the name the, the the Bin Laden family, you don't think of all the good charity work they do over in the Middle East, do you? You think of you think of one man. <laughs> don't get it in Newcastle politics. Come on now. Would you take him in Newcastle for ten games? <laughs> Cut this out, Bin Laden. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Navy SEALs put an edge oh, on it a couple of years ago. Hang on, I didn't do that. You said it I don't know because we sit here and we say anyone's better than Bruce, but I don't know if I would take him. Probably not at the minute, maybe next season. I think Wilder's in real danger, potentially, of alienating himself from jobs because I think he might have a bit of a chip on his shoulder. He's done such a good job. He's worked so hard to get there with his time at Oxford and Northampton, things like that. He's got to the Premier League. He's done well last year, as you said. And he's left now almost, it feels, so he can say, has never been relegated type thing. And therefore, he wants to go for Premier League jobs. And there's going to be Premier League jobs come up this year. I think... That Palace job might come up. Hopefully, if Newcastle stay up, I think that job might come up. Um, I think there's half a chance that even Dyche's time at Burnley is up. And therefore, there's two or three jobs that I'm not sure whether he's got a ceiling on him that pulls him out of those Can jobs. Dyche's time at Burnley's up? Could... I don't think he's that far away. I don't think he is that keen of the running of the places either at the minute. And I think. His problem is he's probably got a bit I of a I think scene, Burnley's nothing he? short of an absolute exactly. shambles, by the way. Because Dyche took them into yeah. Europe a couple of years ago and they've just not backed him. And I was having this discussion with my brother the other week. Have they ever signed a player from above them in the league table? The signed the last one I can think, player that they've signed from another Premier League club, and correct me if I've got this wrong, is the signed Dale Stevens from Brighton. And he wasn't even getting a game at Brighton. One of their best players at the minute has been... Um, Brown Hill in midfield, they got him from Bristol City. Chris Wood up front, they got him from Leeds. They got Charlie Taylor from Leeds. Leeds. Dwight McNeil's an academy product. Uh, Matteo Vidra, they got from Derby. Well, I suppose that's where Doig's point kind of comes in. Valid, doesn't it? Because at some point, you're not going to think, well, what else can I do? At some point, you're going to get just in the Premier League for the owners might be what they want. But for the manager, that probably isn't what he wants. He probably wants to develop getting to Europe was a big thing for him. He probably thought, right, this is the time I spend some money. Were they going to stay up again? Like, I mean, were they going to go in Europe again that year? Burnley. Probably not, but at least you better players. I feel yeah, for Burnley, like the so I think in got... a way, they just... To me, from the outside looking in, obviously not knowing anything about Burnley, they never look like going down because Sean Dyche makes them resolute at defence. But they're a team that will... If they finish above 12th, they've had an exceptional season. They're a prime 12th yeah. to 16th. Just, you know, that they'll always be in the relegation conversation, but I could never, like, even now, people say Burnley are in there. They're not. They're not going to go down. And I can't see them going down. But I. Is, is Palace a step up for Dyche? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Because he'll get a bit of backing of Palace. I think he's I got think... more expressive players. I think he could potentially take Palace on a little bit. Palace are weak at the back. But but then is Palace his ceiling? Because he didn't even get a look in for 
the West Ham job when Moyes got it back. He didn't even get a look in at Everton. I would never when uh, they put Ancelotti in. So what's what's his ceiling? Because it is Palace's well, ceiling. In a way, I would have said I would have gone on to say I was surprised he didn't get a look in at West Ham. But then when you consider how well David Moyes has done in the second spell at West Ham, that's obviously a good decision. Everton went on to get Ancelotti, so you'd say that that's a too far past him. So yeah, probably Crystal Palace, maybe a Southampton of something. I know they've got Hassan Hutton at the minute, but they're on a terrible run of form. I think they might be bottom of the form table. I think since since they were top in December, they're yeah, down there so... with Newcastle. But the other one you've got to remember, and he who keeps getting linked with that Celtic job that you linked um, Wilder to, is how he's still out of a job, and I am convinced that him being out of a job for a year is actually the best thing for his reputation because. Yeah. He's been away. He got relegated. Yeah, that's, like he, yeah. he did go down with them. And I think him being away for a year, everyone's saying, get this young manager in who plays exciting football, this, that. He got relegated. And that is on his record that I'm still convinced that him being out of football for a year is doing better for his reputation than if he was to come back in. And maybe that's maybe what Wilder a, needs to do. Maybe he needs to I take a little bit Eddie longer. Howe. I mean, you've got to remember Eddie Howe mm-hmm. a couple of years ago was being linked with the Arsenal, Arsenal job, the England job. Mm-hmm. I think now just having a couple of years away from football just a breath of fresh air coming back in seeing it from a different perspective he's done his Monday night football he's done his bit as a pundit he's probably just enjoyed it as being a fan watching Bournemouth not having the stress of day in day out you know I mean there's those jokes where you see how much a manager ages in a position while they're in the job maybe it's just allowed him to have a breath of fresh air I mean I'd say a holiday but because of lockdown he's obviously probably not been away a great deal but I, if you said to me, who do you want to replace Bruce? Howe's number one for me as a fan, even though he's just been relegated. Chris Wilde has just been relegated. I know it's not been confirmed yet with Sheffield United. I wouldn't want him instead of Howe. Do you think, do you think Wilder would be a step up from Bruce? Honestly, I don't know. Or do you think it would be a kind of sideways movement that anybody would change things up? Be, I think it'd be, be better be than Bruce of... because at least when you look at a wild team, you know every week they're going to line up in that 5-3-2, but at least they've got an identity. With Bruce, you just never yeah. felt like there was an identity there, a plan there. Um, the other thing you've got to consider nowadays in football is the difference between a manager and a head coach. How much of an input do they actually have in the yeah. day-to-day runnings of a club? How much of an input do they have in the, the signings? Um was it Wilder that went out and paid twenty-five million for Ryan Brewster? Because if he did, then you'd say he should never get another job in football. Well, that's well, why that's why he's gone. It's yeah, because he didn't yeah. want a direct they want to bring a director of football in who can take that responsibility from him. He wants full control. And their response is, well, look where you're spending our money when we've tried to back you with twenty five million that Chef United yeah, haven't really in had which case, Um I wouldn't be overly quick to bring Chris Wilder in. I'd see him compared to Steve Bruce as a sideways step. You're just delaying the inevitable. I thought last year they overperformed. They pressed high. They were aggressive. That five at the back was hard to break down. They had no injuries. But they never scored goals up front. I mean, you look at where the goals came from last year. It came from the, the wing-backs contributed well. John Lundstrom had a great season and now he's holding out for a free transfer. Bit of a Billy Big Bollocks move. Um, yes, I'd have him at Newcastle. Um <laughs> Sounds like Ryan Fraser. Really big bollocks. Honestly, one good season and thinks that he can walk into a top six club. But it's that sort of a bit like what Newcastle fans will say. 
when we lost, we were poor. When we won, we were lucky. And I just wonder how much of that was the case with Sheffield United. They batted us at their place at Bramall Lane, but because they didn't have a goal scorer up front, they couldn't beat us last season. Yeah. I always found it it's strange that they had kind of four strikers. but Exactly. I mean, Billy Sharp, um, Goldrick, McBurney. Again, all championship strikers and all, if you ask me, middle-of-the-road championship strikers. Like they're not a, It's not an Ivan Tony, it's not a Dwight Gale, it's not an Holly Watkins, it's not a Neil Mopé who has also flopped in the Premier League, by the way. Like, yeah. I think he's... The only thing I would say about Wilder is that he seems, or he seemed to have players playing for him. And I think the loss to Leicester at the weekend, losing 5-0, sort of screamed that, that even though they've been bottom of the league for so long, I think the stat was that of all the losses this year, 14 of them have been one-goal games. And then suddenly they lose 5-0 the game after he's gone. It's the worst loss since decades basically since before he took over I think or since he was a player even or something like that and that screams that the players actually did have something from there was an outpouring of emotion there were loads of posts that it reminded me a little bit of when Benitez left Newcastle and all the players were posting things and it was very much almost anti-board sentiments where it was thanks for the opportunities thanks for everything you've done thanks for the career this that and the other there's players that he picked up in League One that he's given a Premier League two years to that probably as you say shouldn't be anywhere near that and so they're all saying thank you and they've maybe down tools and maybe he's just squeezed the last inch that he can get out of them and maybe they were going to free fall but they've got half a chance to come back up with that squad I would have thought and then they've got to rebuild but if they don't get the right man in well that's the thing but I mean if you look at the teams that have gone down recently and retained their manager and come straight back up Norwich look like they're going to do it again under Daniel Farker Um, yeah Newcastle, in a way, did it under Benitez. I know we only had him for 10 games, but we kept him on. He brought us straight back up. The number of times that you see that sort of thing happening, you just wonder, should they have maybe kept him kept him on to bring him back up? I think the bigger picture is, as you said, there's been a falling out with the board there and the owners, and that's been, I think that's been the major problem. Um, if, they, if they hold on to all their main players, obviously there's a couple that are going out on a free... And they get a decent championship manager. Do they come if back? They had, up? Do if they, they have wild, challenge? I would say they would be favourites to come out next season. They've just bought Jason Tindall in, haven't they? As a coach who was well, the he was one with who Howard Bournemouth, and he took over from Bournemouth. Got yeah. sacked. Yeah, who yeah. got sacked with Jones or left with Jones? Yeah. Anyway, lots to keep an eye on. We've already done our prediction for this week, gentlemen. So we'll uh, we've, we're a week early on that one, so we don't need to do anything for that. So. Anything to add just before we, we leave it for there? Just good luck yeah, on your thanks, best mate. this week, Jim. I'll, um, I'll see you at my intervention, yeah? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll make sure you I'm dickhead. There. Pleasure as always, gentlemen. See you, lads. You too. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. I'm the gap with the bass and drum Going around like bum, bum, bum. 